0: PlushCare.com slash loss Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jennekin. Should we thank our patrons? Sure. Okay, we have a Patreon account where we have tons of bonus episodes. If you run out of listening to episodes on our main feed, you can subscribe for as little as $5 a month and get access to all of those episodes. And this week, we had... Candice, Chelsea, Vanessa, Jennifer, Gina, Laura, Sharon, Heather, Sarka, Gigi, Quinn, Sarah, Holly, Juki, Sam, Margo, Ashley, and Stephanie. Thanks, guys. And once again, that's patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Wow. Professional. Thanks, Desi. <laughs> What are we doing this week? Okay, so we've talked about
1: some of the OG Hollywood scandals, including the Fatty Arbuckle case, the death of Thomas Ince, and the murder of William Desmond Taylor. But before all of those was the mysterious death of actress Olive Thomas, the first Hollywood scandal to attract international... um, attention, basically. So she was just 25 years old when she died. She was on the verge of megastardom after a star turn and the Hollywood hit the flapper when she died in Paris with her husband, Jack Pickford, who is a member of Hollywood royalty at her side. Now, The event punctuated the end of Hollywood's golden age and flagged the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, where suicide, rape, and murder were not the sinister plots of pre-code Hollywood films. They were real-life situations surrounding many of the biggest names in the industry. That was written by author Michelle Vogel, who wrote the book, Olive Thomas, The Life and Death of a Silent Film Beauty, which I used as a source for this episode, I also used a piece called You Don't Know Jack about Jack Pickford from a blog called Paradise Least that was written by Steve Vaught, The Man Who Had Everything, The Curious Case of Jack Pickford and the New York Times by Shane Brown, and a lot of other newspapers uh, and stuff like that as well. There was also a Stories of the Silent blog. I They had some information there as well that I kind of picked through. So yeah, let's get into it. Olive Thomas was born Oliva R. Duffy in Pennsylvania, but in her effort to give her background a little more allure, she would often claim her birth name was Oliveretta, to be a little more exotic. Now, she's the eldest of three children. The Duffies were your typical working-class Irish-American family. The family was shattered when dad, James Duffy, who was a steel worker, died in a work-related accident in 1906. The family moved closer to their grandparents, who would care for the children while the mom went off to work in a local factory. In order to help ends meet, um, Olive eventually joined the workforce at the age of 14, an already blossoming, beautiful young woman, or I guess a young girl at this age, her first gig was posing for nude photos in Pittsburgh. What? Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. crazy. Uh, yeah. She eventually leaves school completely at the age of 15 when she gets a job selling gingham at Joseph Horn's department store for $2.75 per week. Gingham? That's so cute. Like tablecloths? <laughs> I guess, like, yeah, the fabric. Little dresses. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but it sounds real 1906 <laughs> for sure. Uh, so in April 1911, at the age of 16, she gets married to Bernard Krug Thomas. That's where she gets her last name, but they separate just two years later on the grounds of desertion and cruelty. Olive had a real itch to move to the big city, and she did just that moving to New York City in 1913. She quickly found work again at a department store in Harlem, but her golden ringlets and porcelain skin and that constant attention of men made her quickly realize she was destined for more. But what made her really next level were her beautiful eyes. Now, this is something that's commented on a lot. She's only... um, There's only images of her in black and white, and her films are all black and white, so we never really get to see the full effect of this. In her 1955 memoir, her future sister-in-law, Mary Pickford, describes Olive as having the loveliest violet-blue eyes I have ever seen. They were fringed with long, dark lashes that seemed darker because of the delicate, translucent pallor of her skin. Now, in 1914, she enters a modeling competition for the most beautiful girl in New York City and wins, beating out hundreds of other contestants. Her picture was in all the papers for winning this competition. This contest helped establish her career as an artist model, and she would pose for like numerous famous artists of that day of the day, including, including Harrison Fisher um, and just like other people I've never heard of. <laughs> But they have Wikipedia pages, so I guess they're big. Oh,
0: Harrison Fisher.
1: Yeah. Hey, maybe you're related. (laughs) So she gets featured in, like, magazine covers at this point. Because this is, like, in the days where a lot of that stuff, they don't take pictures they like their drawings yes you know i mean you kind of covered this in the evelyn nesbitt she's like of that that kind of thing now she's also on like the saturday evening post that's like a big one um art that artist harrison fisher dubbed her to be actually the most beautiful girl in the world not just new york city her uh, entree into the elite social set was a go at this point now legend has it that Fisher wrote a letter of recommendation recommendation to Florence Ziegfeld, resulting in her being hired for the Ziegfeld Follies. However, Olive would later say that she just walked right in and asked for the job and got it, regardless of how it happened. At the age of twenty in 1915, she becomes a Ziegfeld girl. Like, so that's like a big deal. That was like a hot hot thing to get like
0: for sure yeah in that day
1: so movie historian terry ramsey wrote in 1926 that she had a dazzling impact on stage she was a sudden sensation and became the toast of broadway strong men grew dizzy under her eyes he said she was overwhelmed with the admiration and gifts of treasure diamond necklaces pendants rings parties orchids everything now the follies produce- producer Florence zigfield was besotted with her and made her her his mistress. At the time, he's married to Billy Burke, who played Glenda the Good Witch, but she was a big Broadway actress uh, before she went into movies. Um, but he was constantly fucking his folly girls. Uh, that was his thing. Uh, but Olive was his favorite at this time. She was adored by him. He lavished her with expensive jewelry. Um, he paid her $75 per week, which is like $1,700 a week today. So that's a lot of money. She sent much of that home to her family. Uh, a critic named Philip Mindle, who wrote for the New York Tribune, said, to know Olive Thomas personally is like being on friendly terms with an angel. That's Aww. what people say about me. <laughs> me. <laughs> Now, he eventually cast Olive as the star of his midnight frolic. The frolic was staged after hours on the rooftop garden of the New Amsterdam Theater. This was a show for famous male patrons who had lots of money to give these young and beautiful female performers. She would get lots of expensive gifts from her admirers here, and it was rumored that a German ambassador gave her a $10,000 string of pearls one night. A poster of the time did depicts her with these cascading auburn curls and her eyes closed in ecstasy, smoking a cigarette as her nightgown tumbles off her shoulders. <laughs> I like the art from that period those kind of pictures Art nouveau yeah, yeah. of like women particularly like the drawings yeah oh, they're nice
0: too.
1: Uh, in midnight frolic she danced in a barely there costume made of balloons and the 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 male spectators were were permitted to pop them with their cigar. <laughs> That's, That's hot. A hot I was like That's my dream That's a hot move <laughs> And I want to do The popping too I love to pop a balloon With like a cigarette You want to pop Your own balloons Maybe Ooh Ah Ooh <laughs> like, like you make Those little faces <gasps> Ooh Whoops <laughs> So she continues modeling while she's appearing in, the, appearing in these shows. She becomes the first Varga girl after she poses for a, a, a portrait painted by the famous artist Alberto Varga. Now this portrait, I you can find it online. Maybe I'll post it, but it's kind of risque, so I don't even know if we can post it on Instagram. Maybe we can if you guys don't tattle. This is titled Memories of Olive, and it's her nude from the waist up clutching a rose. This portrait was commissioned by Ziegfeld, but um, that claim is sort of like sketch. He did purchase it at some point but hu- and hung it in his office in the New Amsterdam Theater. And he called her one of the most beautiful brunettes. Uh, oh, sorry. Varga called her one of the most beautiful brunettes that Ziegfeld ever glorified. And he kept a copy of the painting for his personal collection.
0: Let me ask you a question. Yes. So she's had blonde hair. Auburn hair and brown hair? No, her hair is brown, but it's
1: golden. It has like a golden highlights in it. Okay. So it's like, yeah, that kind of goes all over, but I've seen pictures of her. She has brown hair, but I guess it's like golden ringlets. So there's some golden in the brown. Uh, I okay. don't know. Maybe it's, she had highlights. <laughs> she had chunky highlights, Rachel. Uh, so men adored her, but obviously all the other filled girls did not that One fucking bitch. <laughs> that fucking bitch. Look at her. She's not even that pretty. <laughs> One in particular um, was Kay Laurel. That was the previous favorite of Zigfield. She detested Olive. Um, and Olive was also notorious for her crude language and behavior. She was kind of like out there, which I like. Mm-hmm. And she used to flash her jewelry to these bitches <laughs> when they were mean to her. She once... Um, Showed them all, showed off a huge diamond ring that she had, and she said, This cost me a couple of humps in Palm Beach, <laughs> 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 which I feel like is a go to line from now on forever.
0: <laughs> I agree. This is like uh 1915 showgirls, absolutely. Yeah, Just, I mean, with the rivalry of the girls, yeah,
1: so. Her affair with Ziegfeld finally ends because he refuses to leave Burke and marry Olive, but other big-name suitors were ready and waiting, including the Hollywood director, Thomas Ince, who fell in love with Olive and begged her to star in his films. He would also go to the gossip magazines and kind of, you know, pump her up. He'd be like, she's so sunny and whimsical. Her personality is, she's a brunette of the vivacious type with golden brown hair that screens unusually well. So he was totally like you know, giving her the star treatment. Sounds like a simp. Yeah, absolutely. And that really set her on her way to be moving to Hollywood and becoming a film actress. So in July of 1916, she signed with International Film Company. She made her on-screen debut in this ongoing serial called Beatrix Fairfax that was produced by William Randolph Hearst. She eventually signs with triangle pictures that give her a contract and move her out to California, where she soon's, she earns a reputation as an energetic brain eager to learn the nuances of film, from acting to directing to prop construction, but she was also known as a real good time girl. So the Los Angeles Times noted at some point in 1917, Miss Thomas has a reputation for seeking action and plenty of it. Mm. <laughs> she also picked up with an old admirer. One of the regulars at the midnight frolic was Mary Pickford's younger brother, Jack. He was the black sheep of the Pickford family, and they were about to embark on a love affair that would burn bright but end tragically. So now I'm going to give you a little background on Jack, Jack Pickford. So poor Jack Pickford. He had... Definitely not, has definitely not been treated well by history, pretty much remembered as Mary Pickford's little brother, who was basically a no-talent, drug addict, alcoholic, um, abusive guy who caused nothing but strife for his family. That's pretty much what's been out there about him. So... But many Hollywood historians are now kind of looking back more objectively on him. And although he was definitely no saint, he is an early example of someone being untreated fairly by the media. And those negative stories just kind of stuck to him, uh, leaving him with this maligned reputation. Obviously, as always, things are much more complicated than that kind of uh, what happened to him. So he is the only son of John and Charlotte Smith, and after his father, who was an alcoholic, abandoned the family when Jack was an infant, he was basically on his home in this house full of women and girls. In order to make money, Charlotte became a stage mom, putting her kids, Jack, Lottie, and Gladys, soon to be Mary) out on the vaudeville circuit. They eventually changed their last name to Pickford, which was like a family name, And they really were pretty successful on this uh, vaudeville circuit. Now, he was the son, as I mentioned before, and he was kind of alone a lot with barely any adult supervision because the mom really put all her focus on the girls. He definitely fell in with the wrong crowd (laughs) and he's a child so i don't know how to say that in any other way because these are adults with a child kind of giving him booze and and like showing him like how to whore around and like all of this stuff in fact the adults in his orbit even took him when he was 14 years old to his first whorehouse and even glued a merkin on him to hide (laughs) how young he was not not the bush oh okay (laughs) Th- but like, is a Merkin, wait, is no, a Merkin he, only on pubes? Yes. Okay. So they put a Merkin on him That's to, gross. to like give him pubic hair. That is okay, disgusting. wait, well, if you're doing that, <laughs> you know wrong. someone's too young to go to the whorehouse. Yeah, a Merkin. Wait till he gets pubes at least. I mean, 14, it's like you got a year, maybe a year. <laughs> he he might've had a few peach fuzz. I have no idea. That is disgusting. Yeah, awful. So- Now, Mary Pickford was not only the favorite child, she was also incredibly driven, and that really paid off for the family. When Hollywood came calling in 1917, she would end up getting a million-dollar contract with Biograph Pictures, becoming America's sweetheart before that was my title. Uh, so she's like a huge star and she also has an interesting story that I'm not going to get a ton into, but she was like famous for playing very young. So even in her thirties, she was playing like 12 year old girls. Like that was her, her niche. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's weird. So she did not leave her family behind. However, she got them all contracts as well, uh, in the movies. Now a lot of hatred for Jack low key begins at this point because nobody likes nepotism. And it's like, they all, from that moment on, it's like everything he's, he does is tainted with like,
0: oh, you got that because your sister's Mary Pickford. Nobody likes nepotism, yet we still do nepotism all the time.
1: Oh, one of my favorite stories is um, when Tori Spelling, like I will never forget that story. I saw an interview with her and she was like, here's how I, I, I auditioned for Beverly Hills 90210. I didn't tell anyone I was Aaron Spelling's daughter when I showed up. <laughs> and it's like, you would not have gotten that role. If you, unless you were Aaron Spelling's daughter. Like, I'm sorry. Like, no one fucking believes you. Like, it was so irritating that she just continued to go along with this ruse. Like, it's like, no one buys this in a
0: million years. Are you kidding me? Well, I don't even think she would have gotten in the room to audition if she weren't Aaron Spelling's daughter. No, it's crazy. Like, and it's okay to admit that. Like, yeah, I got this job where I got my foot in the door through nepotism because there are plenty of, there are like actors and actresses who have essentially like, you know, got their foot in the door or gotten like a huge advantage because of nepotism, but they are talented in their own right.
1: Right. But just admit that half, 90% of it is getting your foot in the door. Of course. There's lots of talented people who don't even get that. Ever. Yeah. So it's irritating. But I mean, also everyone would take advantage of it (laughs) if we had the opportunity. Right. So... Like I said, the idea that he was Mary's little brother becomes a constant struggle for him. But he was, like you mentioned, actually very talented. Luella Parsons uh, said, I have always felt that Jack might have become one of the screen's great actors if he hadn't been born Mary Pickford's brother. Director D.W. Griffith also thought that he was the best natural actor he had ever seen Anita Luz, who is a playwright, she said you couldn't help loving him. He was a fun-loving little boy who never grew up. So there was this open, vulnerable quality about him. And he was very charming on screen as well. Uh, uh, Raul Walsh also said that he had this uh, empathy that really went over with the public on screen. Uh, So he was this sympathetic, charming actor who had star appeal on his own. Now, he did star in over 130 films that were pretty popular because he's also often accused of being lazy but he clearly was working a ton right. and those movies are definitely shorter but like 130 films in a short period of time is a lot. Yeah. Uh, so yeah at the peak of the late 1910s he was touted as the male equivalent of Mary's America's Sweetheart being dubbed America's Boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Which is decidedly hornier.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, w- I wanna be America's
1: boyfriend. I do too. Now, he was also popular, you know, out and about in Hollywood. He was a real party boy that was very well liked. Now, he drank a lot. And may have been an alcoholic, but he was like a pleasant one, as loaded as he would get. Like he was always maintained a pleasantness and people liked being around with uh, around him. Anita Lu said, he was the only Lush I ever knew that was actually good company. So despite all of that, he was still left with feelings of inadequacy. Being, uh, Luella Parsons wrote, being the brother of one of the world's most famous women gave him an inferiority complex. He has always felt people were being nice to him because of the tremendous popularity of his sister. So it it really didn't matter how talented or successful he got. He kind of always felt like he would never be taken seriously. Now, another reporter for the New York Times declared at some point that nothing could stop him from landing at the top. That is except for himself. And that really is true for Jack Pickford. He seems to get in trouble constantly. There's numerous stories in the books that I read and the articles of him doing like pranks that go a little too far. Like he like burnt down some kind of room in a house of Mary's, but everyone's like, oh, Jack, like he definitely had that kind of like, he gets away with murder because he is so charming thing. But that was all about to change, and we'll get back to that at the end of the break. A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. So as I mentioned about 1916, Jack picks up this whirlwind romance with Olive Thomas. Francis Marion, who was a screenwriter at the time, commented on their relationship. They were everywhere. People would see them at Mary Pickford's house. Pickfair was like a famous house with Mary and her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, they had tons of parties there and Olive and Jack were at these parties. She described them as two innocent looking children. They were the gayest, wildest brats who ever stirred the stardust on Broadway. So they were a hot couple. They were a hot couple. They were talented. um, But she said they were much more interested in playing the roulette of life than in concentrating on their careers. Now they're both in their early twenties. So I don't doubt that that's true. Right. After eight months of being together, uh, Jack and Olive get hitched in a private ceremony in New Jersey, and they keep this marriage secret. Um, I don't really know why, but people speculate because Mary maybe didn't approve of this marriage now she says in her nineteen fifty five autobiography by autobiography Sunshine and Shadow <laughs> she she basically says that they thought Jack was too too young and she said that she felt Olive being from a musical comedy background belonged in an alien world like the Broadway world. Maybe they thought she was a little bit of a hoe or something. I have no idea. They, they heard about that balloon act. They did. Now she says Ollie, that's what she's sometimes called, had all the rich eligible men of social world at her feet. She was deluged with proposals from her own world of the theater as well which was not surprising. And then she goes on to talk about her beauty. She said, I could understand why why Ziegfeld never forgave Jack for taking her away from the follies. She and Jack were madly in love with one another, but I always thought of them as a couple of children playing together. So that's a common uh, thought about them, that it's just two kids who are in love and uh, they shouldn't be taken seriously. Now, they were pretty much the love of each other's lives though, like in their opinion. The marriage was tumultuous and filled with like lots of back and forth, like big fights and then lavish making up with huge gifts just like constantly uh doing doing that game now in 1917 jack joins the u.s navy's aviation corps which was like a big thing at the time because it was kind of like one of those things where hollywood it's like are you going to war or are you not like so they had a lot of pressure on them but jack really wanted to go He makes a comment around this time that would later come back to haunt him. The comment was, want to know my idea of a good war job being a chauffeur to a general with a yellow streak. So he kind of was making a joke, But then it would come back and bite him in the ass in March of 1919. The war is over at this point. He is back in Hollywood, and this bombshell drops on him. He had been deemed undesirable by the Navy and was being kicked out for his involvement in a high-level bribery scandal. Now, this was a group of well-to-do, what they did, they were called slackers. (laughs) Slackers. Is that and one that the was word? a high? That was a high insult, by the way. Slackers back then. Oh, I got called that all the time. Well, yeah. Uh, so back then, though, to be called a slacker was like not good. So they were these high-level, well-to-do st- slackers, dubbed the safety-first men. They paid tens of thousands of dollars in expensive gifts and bribes to naval officers in order to secure bomb-proof assignments that kept them out of like dangerous situations, which is exactly what Jack joked about. Now he was not really the mastermind of this scheme but he kind of did the back and forth like he would bring the bribes to the the like um naval officers uh so he got hit by it uh he was definitely included in that so obviously that did not go down well the pickford name and connections however did save his ass charlotte his mom interceded because she was personal friends with the president the private secretary to the president of the United States (laughs) and she kind of shifted things dramatically Jack's discharge was automatically changed from dishonorable to ordinary and he got a recommendation for further enlistment if he wanted to now she's like often considered one of the most powerful stage mothers in Hollywood history and especially at this time. She's an OG Chris Jenner. She is. Now she would take on studio he- heads and like bring them to their knees. She did nothing. She did the same with like heads of government. Like she could fucking she was that bitch. Um, so she did that for her son and she she went so far that they even put on his report that his, sopri- his sobriety was excellent which is not <laughs> the case at all. It's like mom you didn't have to go that far. <laughs> but that's how how that they did not fuck with her so this obviously did no favors with him for him in the court of public opinion however he was sensitive to these charges of nepotism and getting off easy for his name already and at this point it really fucking affected him because people were like what the fuck like you don't have to pay for anything like this was a serious charge and he got off scot-free now he was basically humiliated. Like he got bailed out by his mom, like not good. So his drinking became a real problem at this point and people started disliking him. So this charming, you know, guy, all of a sudden people were kind of turning on him at this point. Now he's still married to Olive and they're still attending all these parties. Um, and they're really into like alcohol and some people speculate heroin and cocaine as well. Now, uh, he at some point Fucks around on her and gets syphilis. Uh-oh. so that's not good. <laughs> There's a lot of speculation as to like how open their marriage was. like no one really knows what was like on the level and what wasn't. Um, but around this time, I think in nineteen nineteen their marriage becomes public, and they do become more of a Hollywood like scandal sheet celebrity couple like people want to follow them now but they're kind of like hate him and like her so his movie career is kind of stalled and she's definitely becoming a more major star in 1919 she signs with Myron Selznick who had Selznick Pictures Company. At this point, she's getting $2,500 a week. She is looking to have more serious roles. Uh, Her first film for Selznick is called Upstairs Down, and that's successful. And she kind of establishes her reputation as a baby vamp. Cute. Yeah. And then she follows it with a few other roles. But in 1920, she gets her big break when she plays a teenage schoolgirl in a movie called The Flapper. This is like the first time she's the first actress to portray a flapper on screen. So, this is a big sort of cultural like moment. Now, the role she exert, she yearns for excitement beyond her small Florida town. As I mentioned, she plays a schoolgirl in which her character falls for an older man and then becomes a jewel thief. Sounds like a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope nothing happens with the older man.
0: And she, this is a silent film?
1: Yeah, it's a silent film. So, yeah, she plays a flapper. As I mentioned, this is like the first film portraying this flapper lifestyle. It's very popular and becomes one of the most successful films of the year and for sure her most successful film. She's now billed as everybody's sweetheart. (laughs) A little sluttier (laughs) version of America's (laughs) sweetheart. Uh, So as I mentioned, her career is on the ups, but her marriage is definitely going downhill fast. And the pair decide to go to Paris on a second honeymoon in order to rekindle the flame. So on August 12th, 1920, Jack and Olive board the Cunard Liner RMS Imperator in New York Harbor and, flat, and sail off to Paris. So they get there on the 20th. So this is like an eight-day cruise. I, would you do that?
0: No. It sounds boring. Look, I, <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> I mean, it sounds good back then. <sighs> I, I just am not really a cruise person.
1: But like, I think the appeal of like a very high-end thing when it was back there it seemed more luxurious. Yeah, I don't know.
0: But you don't know. I any don't know. I I I think I, I get like claustrophobic and I know they're huge ships and stuff, but like at some point I know I would wake up in the middle of the night and go, I'm in the middle of the water. Yes.
1: So when they get to Paris, they check into the Hotel Ritz. The first four days they're there, they are partying and fucking shopping and spending money an infamous hollywood hanger on known as captain spaulding who is a convicted cocaine smuggler and drug dealer is also a constant presence on that scene with them in paris why do i just
0: imagine like some guy who looks like captain crunch i know he's fucking snorting like a little fucking mustache And everyone's like, who's this guy? Oh, it's the captain. It's
1: Captain Spaulding. He has good shit, though. (laughs) We have to hang out with him. After four days, Jack leaves abruptly for England, where his sister happened to be. He claims he was simply buying clothes in London. But people would speculate later that it was related to maybe some kind of affair. There's no evidence of that being true. But it was kind of like, what the hell's going on? When he returns, he and Olive or have a bunch of fights, like she's pissed that he did this and left her alone. Despite that, they engage in another steady round of clothes shopping, sightseeing, nightclubbing, and kind of go back to this normal life of partying, fighting, making up, repeat. That is until the morning hours of September 5th, 1920, when a horrific tragedy occurred. On Saturday, Saturday uh, September fourth, nineteen twenty, Jack and Olive go out night clubbing with a small group of friends, visiting like the Montmartre area, which is like this bohemian, you know, wild fucking artsy part of Paris. They go to a bar, lots of bars, including one called Le Rat Mort, Desi, <laughs> the Dead Rat. Yes, it's called the Dead Rat. <laughs> now. <laughs> Now the idea that they're partying in Montmartre like really sets this vibe for people who like aren't in the know like people who don't know Paris it's like ooh, they're drinking and drugging in this area that famous artists we used to go to and there's lots of perverted sex happening like just that kind of vibe that that area had sounds fucking fun as hell to me like yeah. I would love to go now Many have speculated what happened that night, but no one really knows anything, especially after 10 p.m. Regardless, they were both back in their suite together around 3 a.m., although there is a dispute as to whether or not they returned together or separately. According to Jack, the only living witness of what happened that night, he was exhausted and drunk and went to bed, but Olive was drunk and restless. So, I'm gonna read to you Pickford's account of what happened that night. He gives it to the Los Angeles Herald Examiner on September 13th, 1920. We arrived back at the Ritz Hotel about 3 o'clock in the morning. I had already booked airplane seats for London. We were going Sunday morning. Both of us were tired out. We had both been drinking a little. I insisted that we had better not pack then, but rather get up early for our trip and do it then. I went to bed immediately. She fussed around and wrote a note to her mother. She was in the bathroom. Suddenly she shrieked, my God. I jumped out of bed, rushed toward her, and caught her in my arms. She cried to me to find out what was in the bottle. I picked it up and read, poison. It was a toilet solution and the label was in French. I realized that she had done what she had done and sent for the doctor. Meanwhile, I forced her to drink water in order to make her vomit. She screamed, oh my God, I'm poisoned. I forced the whites of eggs down her throat, hoping to offset the poison. The doctor count came and he pumped her stomach three times while I held her. Nine o'clock in the morning, I got her to the Nuali Hospital where Dr. Shote and Wharton took charge of her. They told me she had swallowed bichloride of mercury in the alcohol. In an alcoholic solution, which is 10 times worse than the tablets. She didn't want to die. She took the poison by mistake. We both loved each other since the day we married. The fact that we were separated months at a time made no difference in our affection for each other. She, was, she even was conscious enough the day before she died to ask the nurse to come to America with her until she fully recovered, having no thought that she would die. She kept continually calling for me. I was beside her day and night until her death. The physicians held out hope for her until the last moment until they found her kidneys were paralyzed. Then they lost hope. But the doctors told me she fought harder than any other patient they had ever had. She held to her life as only one case in 50. She seemed stronger the last two days. She was conscious and she would get better and go home to her mother. It's all a mistake, darling Jack, she would say, but I knew she was dying. She was kept alive only by hypodermic injections during the last 12 hours. I was the last one she recognized. I watched her eyes glaze and realized she was dying I asked her how she was feeling and she answered pretty weak but I'll be all right in a little while don't worry darling those were her last words I held her in my arm and she died an hour later Owen Moore a friend of theirs was at her bedside as well all stories and rumors of wild parties and cocaine and domestic fights since we left New York are untrue
0: okay why was there a bottle marked (laughs) poison in the hotel room well we'll get we'll get more into that
1: Now, she is dying in this hospital. It's also called the American Hospital. The press begins reporting on various rumors that began to arise about the circumstances of this incident. Some papers reported that she had attempted suicide after having a fight with Pickford because of his alleged infidelities. Others say she attempted suicide after discovering Pickford had given her syphilis. There were rumors that he was plagued by a drug addiction and that she and Pickford had been involved in champagne and cocaine orgies while they were in Paris um, and that Pickford tricked her into drinking poison in an attempt to murder her and collect insurance money. Um, Owen Moore, the friend who accompanied them in Paris, denied all of these rumors saying that Thomas was not suicidal and that she and Pickford had not fought that, e- that evening. He also denied the rumors saying all of my, and I were the greatest pals on earth. Her death is a ghastly mistake. Now, part of, uh, what stoked a lot of these, like cre- wild speculations was there was some inconsistencies in Jack's story, which is like understandable. Like he is, was drunk that night, despite him saying they had a light drinking. <laughs> There's just no way that's true. Uh, He messed up a few things. Like one time he said he tried to soothe her with butter and not eggs. So there were like little things like that. He also claimed that Olive had said all those things to him. But the reality is... Uh, when she arrived at the hospital, she was unable to speak because this corrosive thing she swallowed had literally destroyed her uh, vocal box and Uh. her like esophagus, like everything that was, you know what I mean? Like she could not speak. Like, so I don't know why he would say she said these things unless it was just his like wants and desires or he's like telling the story. I have no idea, but she basically could not speak. Like that was the first thing that went on her. So People were, as I mentioned, wildly speculating at this time. A lot of these suspicions throughout the years were further cemented in Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon book. This is a story in there. And as we all know, like many of the stories he covered, they're just riddled with inaccuracies. And he definitely leans into the most salacious versions of all of these scandalous Hollywood stories. And we've covered a bunch of them.
0: Yeah. And I would go to say, I mean, we love the Hollywood Babylon, but I would go to say that a lot of the stories whether they're completely inaccurate or not, sort of just became canon. Absolutely,
1: because a lot of people weren't covering these stories at all. So that was sort of the only record uh, until like, later on, people would sort of debunk these stories. They're still enjoyable. Of course. Uh, for sure. Now, as I said, many people thought maybe it was suicide because of their tumultuous relationships, uh, relationship and all of this stuff, there was uh, the syphilis angle was also touched upon because that that um, component or that compound or whatever is used to treat syphilis.
0: Well, then why is it labeled poison?
1: Well, because you shouldn't drink it,
0: <laughs> I guess. Uh, now, there's pictures I have.
1: I can post them. They'll that, show you the bottles, uh, the two different bottles, and they are very close. I'm going to get into this, though. So... They, some people speculated like she was being defiant to show him up, like, I'm going to kill myself with this thing. Um, some people did believe that Jack murdered her uh, for various reasons. I mentioned the financial aspect. Maybe he was having an affair and wanted out. Um, He does give her entire state by the way to Olive's mom so that kind of disproves that theory. The most boring option obviously for everyone is that it was an accident but that's also the Occam's razor like thing like it is the most likely thing that to happen based on the evidence. As I mentioned, she is drunk, possibly on drugs or high in some way, and definitely exhausted. When she goes into the bathroom at 4 a.m., it's dark inside, and she mistakenly takes the wrong ton- tonic. Now, people don't want to believe that you could mistake um, aspirin for a liquid or a powder that's in a like, like a jar type, like a you know a bottle. So. That's like one of the things where like, how could you ever mistake aspirin for a liquid or whatever? But back then, aspirin was a powder in a jar. So if you're mixing it with alcohol, which is what she did, you could very easily down a poison instead of the powdered aspirin. Now, mercury bichloride is also was like the Lysol of its day so it was a common bathroom cleaning uh, compound so it is very likely that it could have been there in the bathroom for that reason it was also a popular blemish remover and skin skin lightening um, solution which is obviously banned now because it's a corrosive fucking thing that people were putting on their face uh so yeah like It had multiple uses, and the syphilis treatment was... um, I was reading about this because I was like, well, why was he taking it, or why would he take it? And it's like, it's one of those things where it was sort of used topically. If they injected it or you ingested it, you just didn't take as much as she would have taken. She literally downed a bottle like someone said it, even if she it was the sleeping potion that she might have thought it was or aspirin like people don't know which one she could have died from the sleeping um potion or whatever it would have been as well that's how much she took of it so she just took so much of it uh even though it was used to treat syphilis now uh yeah and there, and, and I have pictures I'll post of the different bottles cuz the French it is in French this mercury bichloride bottle and when you look at it <laughs> it's funny It is funny how similar they are, but the mercury bichloride does say poison on it. And it's like, maybe it's in French, but it's like spelled the same. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like exactly the same. right? Now she's also not alone. Many people died from ingesting mercury bichloride. This was like a thing that happened numerous times. It was a common accidental death by poisoning. And Hundreds and hundreds of people died from this. This is why it was finally fucking banned by the U.S. government. It's just like one of those weird fucking things that people used to do for medical treatments that we would
0: never do now. And all those bottles kind of look the same.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, these are really vintage-looking bottles um, that look so similar. You would have to be on top of your game. Now, obviously, there's a huge investigation into the official cause of her death. An autopsy is performed And the official cause is attributed to acute nephritis caused by mercury bichloride absorption. So her death was ruled an accident. All we know for certain, though, is that this death is really (laughs) a bad way to go. Uh, Like I said before, it burned away her vocal cords. It left her blind. She eventually goes blind because she's alive for five days after taking it. And it basically like ate away her intestines and just fucking destroyed her kidneys. Like it is a gruesome way to go. Now- Jack is devastated and by all accounts he was frantically trying to save her like he did everything he could. The delay in taking her to the hospital is like completely not his fault. That's like something people bring up a lot like why did he wait so long? But it was just something like he could not get it. He couldn't get her there like the doctor was coming to the hotel. Uh there's reasons for it. He brings her body back to the United States once again on the cruise ship and several accounts state that he tried to um, kill himself on the ship while he's carrying her body back. In her autobiography, Mary Pickford recalls uh, something he said Uh, During this about this return trip she said Jack crossed the ocean with Ollie's body. It wasn't until several years later that he confessed to mother how one night during the voyage back he put on his trousers and jacket over his pajamas went up on the deck and was climbing over the rail when something inside him said you can't do this to your mother and sisters it would be a cowardly act you must live and face the future. On September 29th, 1920, they have a funeral service for Olive at the St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York City, and this is a huge event. The entire church is crowded with hundreds of fellow actors and other invited guests, as well as just a bunch of curious onlookers and fans. Several women faint during the ceremony, that's how crowded it is, and several men have their hats crushed in this rush to view the casket. Now, Adding to the mystery of it all was the arrest of this notorious Captain Spaulding shortly after Olive's death. Now, you you might remember I just mentioned him being on the scene during all of this time. And it turns out he's like a very notorious figure in Hollywood history. Um, He is involved in the tragic life of one uh, one of hollywood 's earliest stars, Wallace Reed, who appears in Birth of Nation and Intolerance, he also was in Carmen and like several other silent films he is uh, He suffers a serious injury in a train wreck in one thousand nine hundred and twenty three and becomes addicted to morphine and passes away at the age of thirty one from morphine related uh, I think he 's trying to go clean, but he doesn 't do it right, and he uh, dies from like um The consequences of his uh, addiction, or not the consequences.
0: Complications.
1: Complications. Yeah, thank you. Uh, In his book, uh, in the biography of Wallace Reed, uh, drugs were plentiful and expensive. Stars used them to cure hangovers from bathtub gin or from fruit punch laced with 200 proof alcohol. The bigger dealers concentrated on a single studio and would use a network of low-level studio employees as paid couriers. So Fox had Mr. Fix-It. The man and Captain Spaulding was at a studio called Lasky. He was the one who was arrested for drugs. Um, he was arrested for drugs, like back in the day, and threatened to name people he was selling to. And they, of course, the Hollywood studios
0: got him off. Uh, I know where I know this Captain Spaulding name from. wasn't Wasn't this like a Rob Zombie character? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I swear to, yes, Captain Spaulding is a Rob Zombie character.
1: Well, he's a character in other movies too. So oh. I wonder if he's doing this because of. I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. Um, not Rob Zombie, but now this case, the Olive Thomas death was so big. I think the Hollywood studios finally couldn't protect this guy, uh, even if he threatened things. He was arrested shortly at like this. Brought so much attention to her death that I think people were like looking for every um, excuse or like reason for what happened. And the drug thing was a big story back then. He is an American. I'm sorry. I'm reading this article. An American who gives his name as Spaulding has been sentenced to three months imprisonment for smuggling cocaine into Paris from Germany. The supply amounted to four kilograms and was concealed in a trunk, which went astray and was sent to the depot for lost. Um, Article. So basically his shipment got busted and then he got busted and maybe he wouldn't have been arrested, but because of the scandal of her death, they were like, we have to do something to look like we're cracking down on this partying, uh, whatever. Now, another interesting thing I found was like you mentioned, a character. But this is from a 1928 Marx Brother movie called Animal Crackers. Groucho plays a character named Captain Spaulding. And it's kind of seen as an inside joke to this guy's selling drugs to all of fucking Hollywood. That name, as I mentioned, is associated with his cocaine dealer. He's in this movie. His name is Captain um, Spaulding. In the movie, they sing a song called Hooray for Captain Spaulding, which is like, Basically, like, hooray for my Coke dealer is here. (laughs) Here, Like when he shows up, he gets this song. So it's kind of like a weird inside joke. Uh, I just kind of love these shadowy Doctor feel goods from back in the day. There's so many of them. There's so many of them, and it's like they don't even it's all so new. And they you know what I mean? It's just like it's wild. So although Olive is obviously the one who died, I mean That pretty much ended Jack's life as well. He really is not well after uh, Olive's death. He really goes downhill and his career is pretty much over, but just like psychologically, he's not well. He spirals into um, alcoholism and he's often found just crying or like in a drunken stupor about her death. And Um, people are probably like accusing him. Of killing her? Oh, absolutely. Even if she didn't directly do it, they blame him for putting her in this lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like, he's definitely, he definitely takes the blame on many levels. Like, even if, even though some people do think he directly murdered her, a lot of people are thinking, well, what's the difference? She's still dead. Even if he didn't directly do it, he killed her kind of thing. Right. And he doesn't really uh, recover from that. He, does uh, marry two more times. The first person he marries is in 1922. Her name is Marilyn Miller. She was actually one of um, her the girls who hated her in the Zigfield Follies. She's Uh-oh. also a Zigfield girl who fucked um, Zigfield. So they hook up. Uh, that marriage does not last long. It is. Widely reported to be have been an abusive marriage due to his um, drug abuse and alcoholism. They separate in 1926 and she gets a French divorce. I don't know what that is, but What's I want that? one. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea. It's a French divorce. Now, 1920, 1928 is a very rough year for Jack. His mom, Charlotte, dies. So that's not great. And then on July 6, 1928, he's hospitalized after having a heart attack. So he's released from the hospital. He flies from LA to New York to discuss discuss an offer to appear in some uh, play. And he's like, it's reported that the attendants on the plane said he could barely like manage like dealing with himself in the flight. Like he couldn't lift himself. He couldn't stand. He's in a bad way. Now his final marriage is to a woman named Mary Mulhern. She's only 22 when they marry. She's also a former Zigfield girl, but not at the same time that Olive was. They get married in 1930. The day after the wedding, stores start hounding Jack for bills he's never paid. Newspapers are printing headlines like, summons awaits Pickford in LA. Like he is in debt up to his ears. Uh, So she's kind of like, what the fuck did I marry into? The marriage quickly goes downhill. She starts figuring out that she's basically like a fucking nurse. Like she just has to take care of this guy within three months. um, He starts becoming increasingly violent towards her. So it's not a good scene. In March of 1931, he's in a very bad car accident. He was sleeping in the back seat of the car while a chauffeur was driving, so that's good, I guess. Like He's not drunk driving, at least. At an intersection, the car hit a, a drain pipe, and he the two of them are thrown from the car uh, after that happens, and the car crashes in a tree and is demolished. He's pretty beat up and bruised. The chauffeur has broken ribs. I mean, it's pretty bad. Theories claim that the car must have been traveling very fast when it hit the drain pipe because of just the way they flew out. Mary, um, his wife, takes care of him after the crash. Now, there's this story that pops up, but I, don't, I can't find any context to it. It's just a story from 1931 in September that he awoke from a coma and was in critical condition, but I don't know what he was in the coma for. <laughs> so it's like this random bit of information, but there's no context to it. And I don't know if it's related to the car crash, but it's months later. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Now, she leaves him sometime after he wakes from this coma and goes to live with her parents. He spends Thanksgiving and Christmas alone. His friends um, confront him about, like, where's your wife? And he's like, she's away on vacation. He finally admits in February of 1932 that they are separated and tells newspapers, please say Mary Mulhern is an awfully nice girl, and then I'm sorry we couldn't make a go of our marriage. That is, if you feel like saying something. Luella Parsons writes a newspaper article saying that Jack begged her not to write a story about his marriage ending, but it's kind of like, the cat's out of the bag and he has no choice. It's kind of sad that he doesn't want to admit that the marriage has uh, failed.
0: Um, well, it sounds like he was a pretty shitty husband.
1: Absolutely. So it's, But it's kind of like he's a mess. Like, Yeah, he is a mess. For sure. Now, the divorce is finalized in February 1932. Uh, Jack's friends insist that the real reason of the divorce was that he couldn't get over the death of Olive. Like all of this bad behavior they kind of attribute to that. Um, and that... He just would like call out for her all the time. And even in these drunken rages, it seemed like stemming from his love or despair over her death. Not that that's an excuse. Now, in 1932, like the spring of 1932, he goes to visit his sister Mary at Pickfair. According to her, he looked ill and emaciated. His clothes were hanging off of him like he was a clothes hanger. She recalled in her autobiography that she felt a wave of a premonition when watching her brother leave as he started walking down the stairs. Jack called back to her, don't come down with me, Mary dear, I can go alone. She later wrote that as she stood at the top of the stairs, an inner voice said, that's the last time you'll see Jack. In October of 1932, he is admitted to the hospital, the same hospital in Paris where Olive died, while on vacation. He stays there for months, really sick, and no one ever visits him. Doctors say that during the last stages of his illness, he only talked about his last wife, Mary Mulhern, and he also desperately wanted to see his second wife, Marilyn Miller, near the end, Um, but no one comes to visit him. On December 31st, he gets a blood transfusion and is reported to be getting better, but uh, he eventually does die on January third, nineteen thirty-three, after slipping into a coma and basically never coming out of it. He died from chronic polyneuritis, which is an autoimmune disease that causes dizzy spells and muscle issues. Muscle issues. There's not a cure for it even to this day. Um, he had it for three years. I don't know if he knew he had it, but it eventually spread to his brain, which is what killed him. He was thirty-six years old. Now. Nurses said that he's passed with a smile on his face. I don't know what that means. (laughs) I guess. Now, obviously, a lot of people speculated that something that went to his brain, that he actually died of syphilis. Yeah. Because that is the final stages of syphilis. But there's no record um, of that being the case. Uh, Florence Ziegfeld actually at some point admits to being the one who spread that rumor. So we don't even know that it's true that Jack had syphilis. Right. It might have just been a rumor all along. But like I said, there's just no evidence of stuff like
0: this. I feel like a lot of people back then had syphilis or there were rumors that they had syphilis. Yeah. And it was like
1: definitely a jealous thing. He was mad that he took Mary, um, I'm sorry, Olive. Uh, so who knows? Um, now I'm going to. There was a quote in a 1922 New York Herald editorial about Hollywood and they're kind of talking about how the entertainment business, just, you know, no matter how horrible it gets, it does nothing to deter fame seekers, right? It's like this critical. (laughs) And
0: this is from the 30s?
1: It's from 1922. Oh. So it's a New York Herald editorial. Hollywood, the motion picture capital, a community of dissolute actors and actresses and others of the movie industry, the worst of them, unspeakably vile, the best suspicionable, a colony of unregenerates and narcotic addicts given to wild night parties commonly known as orgies, heroes of the screen by day, and vicious roisters by night, a section of civilization gotten rottenly to smash. <laughs> so Hell- This is like the beginning of like that Hayes code censor, Like, like we talked about, I guess, in like the Billy Haynes most recently, this is where it all starts coming, crashing down. Like the Fatty Arbuckle case happens, the William Desmond Taylor, those are all in the twenties and people just start being like, wow, Hollywood is fucking cool as hell. (laughs) It just starts getting that bad rep.
0: Like people are literally still say that today.
1: I mean, absolutely, nothing <laughs> changes, uh, and it's somewhat true. But it's like everywhere is also bad. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, you think it's just he, bigger. It's more like you think you think we have you know cornered the market on degenerates. I don't think so. I like these words. I was like, I've never even heard of these words:
1: suspicionable <laughs> and unregenerates. Like, no, that's degenerate, unregenerates. I don't even know. I like when you read things, where you're like. Does that even still exist, that word? We, we don't say it anymore. Uh, so, yeah, I have like a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to save for the mini because it's about a haunt Olive of Thomas's ghost. Oh. So I was going to add it tonight, but I feel like we're already pretty long. So I'm going to save it for the mini because uh, I know you love ghost stories. I love them. So the, I've got a bunch. She haunts the New Amsterdam Theater. Ooh. And there's tons of reports of all these different sightings of her there. So we'll hit that up on the mini on Friday. But yeah, that's the story of Olive Thomas and
0: Jack Pickford. Wow. I never knew anything about her, Desi.
1: I I feel like I remember reading in Hollywood Babylon, and I don't remember how I came to do it. I think I might have been looking at Hollywood Babylon. Oh, you know what? I was reading it for the um, Billy Haynes. Mm. Uh, so I think that's where I came across. It. And I was like, oh, there's actually so many stories in there. I was like, oh, I should do that one. Right. Because they're, they're like a lot of ones. They're not the big ones. Yeah. Uh, but they, they're juicy. Yeah. Like there was this one act, actor, Jack Kelly. That yeah. whole story is juicy. So I was like, maybe I'll get to that an, another time. Yeah,
0: I should re-crack open that book too. I, I mean, there's just so... I think also
1: some of these were in Hollywood Babylon 2, which I don't right. think I read as much as, as one. Yeah. Like one I owned and read a ton probably, and I don't think I did the same. The Hollywood Babylon 2 has that famous picture of Liz Taylor on the front <laughs> where she's like getting out of a car kind of like not her best.
0: I, have, I haven't read that one. No,
1: I, I don't recall reading it. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of good pictures. We'll so post I'm going to post them. And yeah, stick around for the many on Friday or come back for the many. Yeah. Because uh, there's some funny haunting stories <laughs> for Olive. Sounds
0: good. Can't, I can't wait.
1: <laughs> so now we do the after show. Okay, we'll see you over there. Bye. Bye.